Jake was up here um, sharing, uh, taking the offering, he was specifically talking about generosity. And tonight, my, my actually in my message title is Generosity, the Path to Revival. And so, um, it's good, Jake. I don't know where you went, but you're listening to God. Uh, uh, turn to First Samuel chapter 10, and I really do want to talk about generosity tonight. First uh, Samuel chapter 10. If you have uh, the, the New King James Version, I want to read you this verse out of the King James Version. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about uh, my story and then um, share some convictions that I have about, specifically about generosity. We'll use uh, money as an example, but um, I, I think it's much more than money. In fact, sometimes it's easier to give stuff than it is to give time. At least it is for me. It's easier to you know, give somebody stuff or give somebody money or, than it is to actually spend time with somebody I, um, but anyway, uh, in First Samuel chapter ten, verse twenty-five, uh, I, I want to tell you a little bit, a little story behind this. Um, when we were writing my my the very first book that I wrote was called The Supernatural Ways of Royalty, and and we were, thank you very much, and we're, I was writing I was writing that book, and I have uh, an editor whose name is um, uh, Allison Armadine, and she's actually a graduate from our school of ministry, and so she's edited probably five or six of my of my books. And um, in the way that we used to do edits in uh, the first three or four books is she, we, would, uh, she, we would edit chapter by chapter, and then she would come over to my house. She lives in, in Oregon, or she did then. She'd come over to my house for three days and, and, and stay in one of our extra rooms, and we would read through the entire manuscript, just um, read through the whole book, uh, you know, from one end to the other, just like six or seven hours a day. And um, and so she she came over. So we had just finished the book. We'd finished at, you know the the chapter edits, and we were doing this uh, this the edit of the whole book. And the, the the day she was she stayed at my house for three days. And on the second day, she found this verse. Now remember, the the book is called the Supernatural Ways of Royalty. And so this is the verse. And if you read the book, it's actually in. We actually put it in the first page of the book. And it's um, out of. Uh, the, key, the New King James Version, I believe, First Samuel chapter ten, verse twenty-five. Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior or the ways of royalty. He wrote it in a book, and he laid it before the Lord. It's pretty cool, huh? We're 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 writing the supernatural ways of royalty, and in her devotional time, she's reading First Samuel out of the New King James Version. And it says, and then Samuel explained to the people the, way, the ways of royalty, wrote it in a book, and laid it before the Lord. Oh, it's just a great sign. And I want to read you the rest of this verse. Uh, it's verse 25 through 27. Then Samuel sent, to all, the, sent all the people away, every man to his house. And, then, and Saul also went to, to Gibeoth, and valiant men went with him, whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. And um, I, I want to just talk a little bit. First of all, that verse, the context of that verse is that they were that Israel was going from having judges, which were pro, the senior prophets of their country. They were the judges were prophets who became the political leaders. So they were political leader, they were the, their religious leader and political leader was actually the same person. So, you know, Eli was uh, was the first, 
one of their 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 first judge, and then we have Samuel, and um, and so Samuel was the last uh, judge, senior prophet slash leader of the country um, that they had, and they asked for a king. Remember, the people asked for a king, and how many of you know that God wanted them to have a king, but He wanted it to be King David. He was preparing a king because. God said to Abraham, kings will come from you. So some people preach that when the people asked for a king, God didn't want them to have a king. The difference was they asked for a king like other countries, like other nations. And God wanted them to have a king, but not like other nations. And so um, when they asked for a king, Samuel got them together and he taught them the ways of royalty because they were moving from prophets leading them to kings leading them. And they were going to have a governmental change. They were going to have a change in the style of leadership. So Samuel taught them the ways of royalty. And how many know that you're a royal priesthood? And that you have a king. You live in a kingdom because you have a king. It's not a a presentum. It's a kingdom. And the only place where there's kingdoms is where the king, where a king has dominion. That's why it's called the king's dominion. And so you've come into, how many know that Jesus is not president of presidents? He's king of kings. He didn't get voted in. Therefore, he can't get voted out. And the kingdom is in, you know, some of you maybe have lived in a country where there's a king. But we have a king who, when he makes decrees, and he doesn't do a majority rule thing. He, you know, that's why you and God are a majority. And I, I love when, you know, people, we get together like in, in the United States, we get together at the White House or whatever and, and you know, a million people at, on the White House lawn or pray. That's all great. But God just said, find me a person. <laughs> How many of you know that God doesn't need a majority to change history? He just needs one person. But tonight, um, I really ha- I'm really going another direction. So. Um, this is this is interesting. In First Samuel 10, um, let me read it one, one more time. Then Samuel explained to the people the ways of royalty. He wrote it in a book and he laid it before the Lord. And Samuel went, and then Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also, Saul was obviously the new king. Saul also went to to, to his home in Gibeath, and valiant men went with him, whose heart God had touched. Okay, you got that. So we got. Samuel teaching the people the ways of royalty. He's commissioning Saul to be king. Valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with Saul. Are you getting the picture? Okay, listen. look at the next verse. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? They despised him. And get this. They despised him and they brought him no presents. But he held his peace. Um, I, obviously, this is... Maybe not the greatest place to launch, but what, what's interesting to me is that what depicted the people who were rebels is that they brought him no presence. There was valiant men who honored him with an honorarium, but the rebels refused to bring him presence. And um, I think that I think generosity is the pathway to revival. And I, I want to talk to you a little bit about generosity. And I want to I talk to you a little bit about, about um, the Old Covenant and New Covenant and, 
And I want to talk to you about tithing, and you can, you know, can work that out yourself as far as what you want to believe about it. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. These are verses you probably know if you've been in the church very long. And Malachi writes this, Will man rob God, yet you, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and in offering, God replies, You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. I, I want to read the last part. Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse so that there will be food in my house and test me now. Everybody say, test me. Test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven. Everybody say, the windows of heaven. And pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Um, in verse 10, I love this in King James Version. It says, bring ye all the tithes in the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. That there may be meat in my house. It's interesting, the word meat there in the Hebrew is the word that means freshly torn prey. That there would be meat in my house. And I want to connect this in just a second. In King James Version, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul writes this. King James Version, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, because you were not able to bear it, neither are you able now. This is an interesting dynamic. In, in Malachi, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and there'll be meat in my house. There'll be freshly torn prey in my house. And Paul says in, in Corinthians, I fed you with milk instead of meat, because you were immature and you couldn't handle it. And I'd like to propose to you that when he's talking about meat, when Paul says, I fed you with milk and not meat, I don't think he's talking about, I I physically fed you with milk. I think he's using the analogy of what you do with an infant, right? You give an infant milk because they can't handle meat. And so he's using the analogy, I fed you with milk and not meat. And in fact, he goes on to say, by now you should be teachers, but you're immature. And Part of the way that we come into maturity is that we trust God. And we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to talk about money, but just because it's easy to illustrate and it's important to God. And then you'll notice that seven out of ten of all the parables were about money. So if you're offended about coming to church and, and hearing someone preach about money, it might be that you have another master. Because Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon is the spirit of money. And so how many of you know that when you're offended because someone's talking about money and they're making general statements and you take it personally, it means you're protecting the one you're serving. So he says in Malachi, he says, if you, you've robbed me because of tithes and offerings. And I'll, I'll, I'll deal with the issue of Old Testament, New Testament in a minute. Uh, you've robbed because, and, and they say to God, well, how did we rob you? We've never stole anything from you. He said, well, you didn't bring your tithes and your offerings into the storehouse, and therefore you robbed me, and there's a curse on you. It's directly related to money in this case. There's a curse on you, all of you. And he said, if you bring the, the, the tithe into the storehouse, I'll open up the windows of heaven, and I'll pour out a blessing that can't be contained. Now, I think that there's, obviously, first of all, I think that there are dimensions to, to Scripture. I, 
I sometimes get frustrated when people have a single dimensional view of the Bible because I think that the Bible's like a hologram. I think there is the word and then I think there's the word. And I think that sometimes people get upset. You know, Jesus oftentimes would take something that was written in the Old Testament, repeat it in a totally different context than the writer, in, in, than the writer did. In, in other words, Jesus would take a scripture completely out of context and I don't mean it would, wouldn't, I don't mean it was anti what the writer, what the author meant, like Isaiah, but it was a different meaning. And so I think that when he says here in, um, in Malachi, when he says, you've robbed me, and if you, open, if you, if you bring me the tide into the storehouse, I'll pour out, I'll open the windows of heaven, and I'll pour out a blessing that you can't contain. A couple of things. One, I think that it means money, that God will, if you give, it will be given to you. But two, I think he says, I'll open the windows of heaven. And I'd like to relate it to this thing that Paul said in 1 Corinthians when he said, you know, in, in, um, in Malachi 3, he says that there may be meat in my house, freshly torn prey in my house. In other words, I'm going to open up the windows of heaven. What happens when God opens up the windows of heaven? You start to get revelation. You start to get revelation. And Paul said, you know, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians he said, I want to give you meat, but you can only handle milk because you're not mature. I would propose to you that, that meat in that context, he's actually saying, I want to give you freshly torn prey. I want to give you fresh revelation, but all you can handle is milk. And I would, I would challenge you that there's something about trusting God with every area of your life. That allows you, it's like when you give to God, he gives back to you. And yes, it has to do with money. But for, for, for all of us, money is, you know, uh, someday you're going to die and you can't take money with you. But what you can take is freshly torn prey. You can take fresh revelation with you. In fact, um, the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. The secret things belong to the Lord. The things that haven't been revealed belong to the Lord. But the things revealed belong to us. The things revealed, the revelation revealed. The things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. In other words, revelation is supposed to be part of our legacy. Glory to glory isn't just like a cloud, a, a purple cloud or, or a purple haze all in my brain. It's not just that. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. How important is that for you? It's important because every time you learn something about God, it's a revelation about you because you are made in his image and in his likeness. So the more you get to know about God, the more you understand the person of God, if you will, the more you're going to understand yourself. You can't find yourself without finding God. People are like, I'm trying to find myself. Well, if you find God, you'll know you. You were made in his image. You were modeled after God. So as you see new dimensions of God, so you can't have a revelation of God without having a reformation in your own life, a reformation in your own life. Paul said, I'm laboring till Christ was formed in you. Until Christ is formed. I'm laboring. How did Paul labor? He was talking about his preaching. I'm laboring till Christ is formed in you. How is Christ formed in you? Well, he, he, he's formed in you as you see him, you become like him because you see him just as he is. 
And what I'm getting at is this, is that revelation is, is directly tied. And I know you're not going to like this part. And I'm not taking an offering for me or Bethel or anybody else after this, so don't worry about that. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'll tell you my own story. Revelation is directly tied to generosity. When you're generous with God, he's generous back. And how many of you know it's much greater than, it's much greater than money? It says, give, and it shall be given to you. I'm way ahead of myself in my notes, but give, and it shall be given to you. In the measure that you give, it shall be measured back to you, pressed down, shaken together, running out all over. How many of you know that verse actually is not in the context of money? That particular verse is not even in the context of money. He's talking about when you give mercy, he's going to give it back to you. But how many of you understand that it's also another dimension to that is whenever you give God anything, he gives it back to you. And you get to determine the measure in which God deals with you in. So if you, you know, if you, if you, if God says give and you give him, you know, 10 one dollar bills, God goes, okay, I'm going to multiply that by a hundred and here's a hundred one dollar bills back. If you give him 10, if you give him 10 one hundred dollar bills, He's going to give you ten one hundred dollar bills back. If you give to God with a teaspoon, He's going to give you back with a teaspoon. Yes, He's going to give you ten times what you gave Him or a hundred times what you gave Him, but He's measuring with your measurement. You told Him what to use to measure back to you. If you give to God with a teaspoon, He'll give it back to you with a teaspoon. Will it be thirty, sixty, and a hundred fold? Yes, but thirty, sixty, and a hundred fold of teaspoon is totally different than thirty, sixty, and a hundred fold of a shovel full or a truckload. Or a barrel, or whatever. The point is, is that you give God, you say, God, listen, you come to the store and you say, okay, I'm giving you this, let's pretend, this grain. God, I'm giving you this grain, it's in a five-gallon bucket. And God goes, okay, hey, okay, I'm going to give back to you 30-fold. I'm going to give back to you in these five-gallon buckets 30-fold back. If you come to God and you give him, you go, here's my, here's my offering, and you, and you give him, you know, ten teaspoons, it's like he goes, okay, you're using teaspoons. By your measure, will I measure back to you? And remember, the kingdom's always backwards from everything else. So he says, give. He doesn't say, you know, once you get, then give. He says, give, and it shall be given to you. Which means it always begins with a place of need. If I have to begin it, someplace way back here, if I have to, if it's give and it shall be given, how many know at some point, if it starts with me giving, I usually don't, unless I was, you know, a child of some rich person, most of us start with nothing. So when God says, if you give, give and it shall be given to you. Well, how many of you know that it always starts with sacrifice? Because the beginning of the, the cycle of reciprocity, I don't have much. So Jesus is, you know, people say, you know, God doesn't care about money. It's funny, when Jesus went to the temple, he was watching what people put in the offering. Well, how do you know that? Because he knew that a lady put in only two cents. He had to be watching. It's silly to say God doesn't care what you give. He does care what you give. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, 70% of the parables wouldn't be about money if he didn't care what you give. You know, the only people who say God doesn't care what you give are people who don't give. The people who want God to care that you give, are people who give. (laughs) God doesn't care what I give. I bet you don't give much. Because you don't want God to care what you give. But if you're giving a lot, you want God to know what you're giving. 
And how many of you know that giving is not measured by what you give, it's measured by the level of sacrifice. So Jesus sees this lady, and she puts in only, you know, I don't know what it would be, probably 25 cents or something, you know. She puts in 25 cents. But Jesus, of course, knows everything, and he knows this is all she has. So there's a bunch of rich people putting in money, and they're, you know, maybe putting in $100 bills, and how many of you know that putting a couple hundred dollar bills in when you're a millionaire is like giving nothing. And so Jesus goes, this lady put in more than everyone else. And they're all like, uh, well, Jesus doesn't know much about math. And he goes, no, no, no. You guys gave out of your abundance. She gave out of her need. Do you understand that when you give out of your need, that heaven watches don't, don't let anyone believe. Don't let anyone deceive you. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. When you sow, God watches. The people that are in pain are the people who don't give tonight. I'm just being your dad. You know, I can say that to you because it's, it's just too true. Well, you know, I said this before, and I'll give you... Sorry, I was going to make this go forever. Okay, here I am. Make this go forever. Okay. I, I've said this before, and I've said it on Facebook, and man, people got really angry. <laughs> the only people I've ever had argue that tithing's not for today are people who are trying to figure out a way to give less. No, I understand there's an argument for tithing being under the law and so on and so forth. And I will address it in a few minutes. The only people I've heard argue that tithing's not for today are people that are trying to give less than 10%. If you, if you give more than 10%, you might have a theological discussion about whether tithing's the, under the law or not, but it's not a big issue to you because you're not trying to give less. But if you're trying to give less, then you've got to make an issue out of it. Because you're trying to give less than 10%. I don't know about you, but if you, go, if you eat at a restaurant, you typically give more than 10%. The person who's waiting on your table. I mean, the guy that holds your breath in his hands. I don't, I don't get it, honestly. I, I mean, I actually don't, I don't get it. I mean, I do get the, the argument about, the, about whether it's the law or not as far as the percentage. But I don't get that people that are all gods would argue that they should give less. I don't, I don't get that at all. Okay. Whew. It's hot in here. Let me tell you a little bit about the tithe. For those of you that believe there, there is such a thing. I personally do. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you some reasons why I do. But the tithe isn't 10%. The word tithe means 10, by the way. So you can't tithe 11%. You can tithe and give offerings. You're, if you give 11%, 10 of it's tithe, the rest of it's offering. Now, there's a reason why that makes a difference. First of all, tithing isn't 10%. It's the first 10%. Now, 
this is one of the reasons why I believe that the tithe, and I'll, I'll show you in a minute, that tithe was given by Abraham 400 years before the law. Moses brought the law. Abraham tied to Melchizedek 10% before there was ever a law. I want to propose to you that the tithe is actually written in the law of faith. Because the tithe isn't 10%. If the tithe is just 10%, I would say it's the law. The tithe is the first 10%. What's that mean? It means before I give anything else, I give to God before I know what's going to be left over. In other words, I don't like write out all my bills and I go, okay, let's see now. Let's give 10%. That would be the law. But Abraham gave it by faith, which means that he said, I'm going to give this to you, and I'm going to believe that you're going to bless the 90% to take care of all my needs. You're going to take, listen, I'm not going to look at, I'm not going to sit down and work out what I owe to who, and then go, well, I can't afford that. I go, no, no. I, if I'm broke, I can't afford not to give to God. I'd rather have 90% blessed than 100% cursed. So what I'm saying is this, is that the tithe, when I tithe, when I'm, the principle of the tithe is this, I give 10% before I know what I owe. And the second thing is the reason why it's called a tithe and an offering, and I said you can't tithe 20%, because tithe means 10. It's like, I give a tenth of all. How much did you give? 20%. Oh, you can't. You can give... 20%, but you can't tithe 20% because it means 10. Okay, what is the difference between a tithe and an offering? Let's just use Old Testament for a second. The tithe you have no control of. It's not yours. It's God's. Second reason why I believe it's an issue of faith. I give this money and I can't control it. I'm not saying the IRS says I can't control it. I'm saying God says you don't have any right to control this money. You give it without strings attached. You can't say, I'd like to take this money and give it for the building a project. No, no. A tithe is your gift to the leadership that feeds you, and it's also a sign that you trust God and them. What if they're not good with money? When you give it by faith and you say, and you say, listen, I, I relinquish the right to control this 10% of my money because this 10%, it isn't mine, it's God's. So if I give it to, you know, if I, I, I go to a church or something or uh, the place that feeds me, they're not very good with money. It's all right. I mean, it's, it's not okay. I get that they should be good with money. Let's talk about from your perspective. It's all right because you did what was right. And God's going to take care of you because you did what was right. Are you get, are you getting, and the principle of, of that, let me, let me just, I'm all over the place tonight. In Acts 4, verse 32, listen to this. The congregation of those who believed were one heart, one soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to them was his own, but all things were common property to them. Now, how many of you understand this is, this is Acts 4. This is four years. Chapter 4 of Acts is actually four years after the resurrection of Christ, and it's the early church. It's the early church's response to Jesus touching them, thousands getting saved. Are you with me? And, it's a, and, and, you, and I'm sure you know the story well, especially most of the students in here have read Acts more than once. And so, you know, and so what's happening is, is that there's lots of poor people around them, 
And they are being so touched that they, they didn't claim that any of the property that they own was their own. In other words, instead of the old covenant was 10% is, 10% is God's and 90% I have control of. Are you with me? They shifted from that mindset in Acts chapter 4 to everything we have is God's. It's all God's. And so they saw people with need. Listen to this. And, but all, uh, it was all common property. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant graces upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the sale. And listen to this. And laid it at the apostles' feet that they would distribute each as had need. Now, think about this. They're living in community. I know that it's not a commune, but in, you know, how many of you understand before cars, planes, and trains that people basically were born and died usually in the same city. So you, everybody knows everybody. If you, like, we, we you know, grew up in Weaverville, and we had obviously cars and stuff, but there's only 3,000 people, and everybody knew, whether you wanted them to or not, everybody knew everybody's business. And so just think about it. Over here, we have the Johnson family who lives down the street, and we, they, we all, all these people get saved. And now we're kind of... Now we're, you know, we're living in community before they get saved. Now we're really living in community, right? We're, we're, they're, they're going from house to house. They're breaking bread together. And, and by the way, this is off the subject of, of giving. But when people say, you know, in the, the early church did church in houses, they were doing life in houses before they ever did church in houses. Before there was TVs and cars and stuff, what do you think people did when they just got off of work? What do you think they did for entertainment? They went from house to house, and they yeah, they spent time together. It wasn't TVs and movies and you know internet and all that. So they they got together, and all they did uh, you know, they were in other words the structure was there when they received Jesus Christ. All they did is add the apostles' teaching to a structure they already had. It was culture. This is what they culturally did before they got saved. It wasn't like hey let's meet in houses. Let's have home groups. Yeah, that's a great idea. No, no, no. Home groups are what we do to try to imitate what they did by nature. And I'm not saying home groups are wrong. I'm just saying they already did this. They already went to the temple on Saturdays. And they already did house stuff before they got saved. Are you with me? Okay, so here, here's the Johnsons down the street. We've got the Johnsons and the Smiths and, and the Joneses. And we, they're all broke. And we know they're all broke. And we've known they're all broke forever. Because we've lived in this city forever. But what, what, what happens is, is that when, we receive, when they receive Jesus, they suddenly said, it's not okay that we have stuff and they don't. So suddenly it mattered. Are you with me? Now, we know we... The Valentins know that the Johnsons, the Joneses, and the Smiths are all broke. So we sell our stuff. Our, and, and, and actually, the context is really, if you, if you read on, you'll notice they're selling their extra stuff. So they got two houses. Or this is the more wealthy people. They have a plot of land they're not using. They got an extra whatever. You, they, got, they have stuff they're not using. They're like, why do we have two of these and we only actually need one? That's what they're doing, right? And so they're selling it. And instead of giving it to the Joneses, the Smiths, or the Johnsons, the money, they know them. They're right down the street. They could sell it and give it to the Joneses. They know the Joneses need money. They don't do that. 
they give the money to the apostles to distribute. Now, do you see something different than the mentality that we live in? See, the mentality we live in, we're like, hey, I know the need. I'm going to give it to the need. First of all, I want the Joneses to know that I gave it. And secondly, I don't trust the leader to give where I want it given. But see, these people, remember, they were these first people who get saved are Jews. So later on, we see, you know, as time goes on, that uh, Cornelius gets saved and then the Gentiles get saved. These people are Jews. They understand something because of their, this is still culture. They understand that the tithe wasn't theirs. That they, they, in the Old Testament, they gave the tithe to who? The priests. The priests used the money for the ministry. Are you following me? So they were accustomed to trusting their leaders with money. It's so funny. We come to a place where we're like, I trust you with my life. Awesome. You take up an offering. They're like, uh, listen, I designate this, my tithe. No, you can't designate the tithe because the difference between a tithe and an offering, and I'll make references in a second, the tithe you, have, you don't have control of. It's God's in the Old Covenant. It was, in the Old Covenant, it was definitely God's. At 10%, you had to give to the Levites. Oh, I only want to give five. It doesn't matter. You're going to give 10. <laughs> and in the Old Testament, you could write, if you wanted to give 20%, you could tell the leaders where you wanted the other 10 to go. You had control over anything above 10%. So if you said, I want to give 15%, this extra $100, I want it to go to the poor. Great. You could say that. It's your money to control. But 10% wasn't. Okay? This is amazing because they've taken the principle of the tithe in that they were commanded to trust the money to God. They've taken that principle that they lived with for 4,000 years that we know of, they took that principle and they brought it into the New Testament, in the new, into the New Covenant. And they said, we know the Joneses need money, but we'll give it to our leaders because we trust our leaders more than we trust ourselves about where the money should go. In other words, <laughs> generosity is a test of your trust for God and for your leaders. Well, I just, you know, I don't believe in what our church is doing. Find a new church. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you can't trust your leaders with 10% of your money, you're going to the wrong church. Like, I trust them with my life, but I don't trust them with my money. I would say you have two gods. Uh-oh. Here we go. So the tithe isn't 10%. The tithe is the first 10%. The principle is, I give God his first. I, I listened to a message by um, T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen, sorry, they're my two favorite TV preachers. They're my only. So they have to be my favorite because I don't listen to anybody else. T.D. Jakes is amazing. He's the only guy I know that can have one point and keep you interested for one hour. When you're ADD, as I am. And he's doing, I, could, I can't even mimic him in a way that, but I turned on the TV in a hotel room, and it, was, it, was, it came on to 
and T.D. Jakes was preaching when the TV came on. And he was, I picked up right away what he's talking about. He's probably 15 minutes into his half-hour sermon. But he was saying he had, a, he had a, a bag, almost like a grocery bag, full of dimes. And he was walking, you know, his church is huge. It's like in this, you know, thousands of people. And he was walking down the aisles and he was throwing out dimes. And he was saying, you can, you can make God your partner for 10 cents. How would you like God to be your business partner for 10 cents? You get to keep 90. He gets 10%. He gets, he gets a dime. You get, you get 90 cents. He gets a dime. And he's the controller of the universe. And you can, be, you can have him be your co-partner. And I'm not even doing it justice, man. Only he can do it. You know. it's, I think partly it's a black thing, man. I'm serious. I've been in some black churches lately, and they have the best preachers I've ever heard in my life. I'm like, I don't even know if I agree with them, and I like this. And I do agree with that, by the way. Okay, the tithe. Genesis 14 is um, is Abraham. We're not going to have time to do all of this and still um, get done this week. I have 26 pages of notes. In Genesis 14:19, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, you remember Melchizedek? They were in a field. Abraham had just beat five kings with his shepherds. Melchizedek, a man who had no beginning and no end, steps into the field. And it says, when Abraham saw this man who had no beginning and no end, who do you think he was? A man who had no beginning and no end. Jesus. A man, but he's called Melchizedek. Came in another form. He had no beginning, had no end. When, Mel, when, when Abraham saw Melchizedek, just, just something happened in him. Uh, you've probably had the same experience. Nobody, no, Melchizedek didn't say, give me 10%. He didn't say anything. He just walked into the field. And when it says that when Abraham saw Melchizedek, he gave him a tenth of all. That's amazing. That's before there was any law. In other words, it tells you that it's in your heart to give. You might argue the 10%, but it's in your heart to give. Later on, 400 years later, what Abraham did by faith became ratified in a law. Deuteronomy, for those of you that are interested in this part, Deuteronomy 14.22, You shall surely tithe all the produce from, that, from what you sow, which comes out of your field every year. And he goes on to say that the tithe goes to the storehouse. The place, uh, it, was, it fed the Levitical priests. And that's Numbers 18.21, if you're taking notes. We're not going to read all these. Nehemiah, 12, uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 12. You can look these up later. In um, Luke chapter 11, verse uh, 42, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, Pharisees. You pay the tithe of mint and rue and every garden herb, herb. Yet you disregard justice and the love of God. These things are things you should have done without neglecting the others. These things, in other words, you're tithing, but you don't love people. Obviously, how many of you know that Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I mean, you're not going to give your way into heaven. You're not going to buy favor with God. 
Are you with me? This is, you can't give, you can't, you know, I, I, I do think that sometimes people give out of penance. I think that there are times when people, they give like heaven and live like hell and think that they're going to get into heaven. You, 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 you can't, like, God's not a crooked judge you can pay off. The, the tithe doesn't pay God off. The tithe is a response to your faith in God. It's not a response, it's not a reaction to your bad life you lived, and now I'm going to, like, give some money to God, and maybe he'll forget it. Are, are you with me? It, it, and by the way, John Lennon tied 10%. Tithe. He believed in the tithe. John Lennon believed in the tithe. Isn't that strange? This is this is really important. I've never shared this part before. I do believe that there are people who tithe ten percent and then think that the ninety percent's blessed and they use it for stuff that is totally immoral, wrong. Live. I mean, they. They, they think because they give 10% that the 90% is automatically blessed. It's kind of a weird principle. Think, well, okay, I gave God his. Now, you know what? I can spend this on whatever. And I can, you know, I can spend the rest on myself. I can, I can be selfish with this. 90, I can spend this 90% on me because I gave God 10. It's like, no, that, that stuff's all crazy. I mean, there's more than one principle to money. There's more than one principle to generosity. So you, you, you don't pay God off. It isn't like, okay, well, I gave my 10, now I can do whatever with the rest of mine. It's like, um, how's it working out for you? <laughs> so Jesus said, you guys tithe even out of your garden. Like you're like so religious about it. And he said, but you don't care about justice and love. I think here he says in this particular um, party says, you, yeah, justice and love. And he said, you should have, you should care about justice and love. That should be more important. Without neglecting the other. What other? Tithe. Now, there's a, a whole bunch of people, I put this on Facebook, I learned a lot about life. <laughs> I learned about, a lot about life by testing it. I didn't know I was testing my Facebook friends, but, and, and a bunch of them defriended me right away. You don't mess with people's money. When mammon's leading them, they will protect them. Um, but uh, I got a bunch of responses. A bunch of people said, well, Jesus lived in the Old Testament, so everything Jesus taught was Old Testament. Lots of weird concept. Actually, the truth is Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. So Jesus didn't just bring the new, he didn't just live in the new covenant. He was the new covenant. He said this when he broke his body. He said this body's broken for you. And when he took the blood, the, the, the cup, he said this is the blood. This is my blood. It's an, this is the new covenant in my blood. How many understand Jesus, he, was, he lived in the old covenant, but he wasn't under the old covenant. That's why he kept saying, you heard it said, but I say. Jesus didn't, Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant. He didn't, he didn't come to nullify it. He came to fulfill it because he was the new covenant. The new covenant is in his body. 
So people are like, when Jesus taught, that was all under the Old Testament. Yeah, it was under the Old Covenant, true. But everything Jesus said was New Covenant because he is the New Covenant. I'm, like, I'm thinking, like, what do you think's New Covenant? If Jesus taught Old Covenant, what's the New Covenant? The epistles? You know, Paul said, was I crucified for you? No, Jesus was crucified for you. Jesus, was he lived in the Old Covenant, but not under the Old Covenant. And he came to fulfill the Old Covenant. And he taught us, he said, he, you know, over and over, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Who said that? Old covenant. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And you'll be like your father in heaven who makes it rain on the righteous and unrighteous. This point is what? He lived in the old covenant, but he was the new. He, he, didn't, just, he didn't just talk about the new covenant. He was the new covenant. <laughs> He was the Lamb of God. He was the covenant. He is the covenant. So I don't know. I'm telling you, the weird stuff that people are saying right now is scary. So you want to take everything that's in red in your Bible? My Bible doesn't have red, actually, but pretend. And say, well, that's all old covenant. Really? So when Jesus said, love your neighbor, that's old covenant? When Jesus healed the sick and said the kingdom's near you, that's old covenant? Sounds new covenant to me. I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not a theologian, but I am. I do have a brain. I've been authorized to use it. Um, concerning, um, is this boring? I don't know if I'm boring you. Okay. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes this to Timothy. The elders who rule well are considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So this is, um, this is just, some people are like, you know, in the Old Testament, they paid the Levitical priests, but in the New Testament, we shouldn't, we shouldn't give money to people who preach. It's like, well, they did. Paul said to the Corinthians, I robbed other people. He said, if I sow spiritually into you, isn't it okay that I reap material things from you? And then he said to the Corinthians, it's a shame that I had to rob other churches to take care of you. And I refused to take money from you because of where your heart was at. To Timothy, he writes, the elders that preach well and teach well are worth double honor. The context is money. The ones that preach well are worth double honor. So, you know, that's a good word, actually. I like it better since I'm a preacher now <laughs> than I did before. I don't know why. It's just it's helpful. Um, turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Verse 10. He who is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in very little is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? If you've not been faithful, if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one 
and love the other, or else he will devote he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Listen to this. You cannot serve God and wealth. Did you hear that? You cannot serve God and wealth. Well, how do I know if I'm serving if I'm serving God and money? And actually actually the word wealth there is actually mammon. It's actually a different word than the word riches or, or wealth. It's it's the King James, New King James, I think, too, translates it mammon. It's actually the spirit of money. How do I know if I'm serving two masters? Well, the, the one I'm serving, I'll protect. So I can't serve God and money. How do I know if I'm serving money? Well, if people are talking to you about giving and you're mad about it, you probably are protecting the person you're serving. I mean, I don't mean you have to give. I just mean if you get mad about people talking to you about giving... There's probably a reason why you're mad. I would just guess there's a reason why you're mad. If somebody's talking to you privately, like if I took you aside and said, hey, you know, I don't see you giving, and you get upset, how many know that's a little different? You come to a place, and they're making general statements. If someone, if you, you know, if someone got up and said, man, people, you know, people who steal out of the cookie jar, those people are creeps. And you go, hey, dude, you're taking me off, and I'm not a creep. I never said you were a creep. I said people who steal from the cookie jar are creeps, so you must be one. Because <laughs> I made a general statement, and you took it personally. <laughs> you're not a creep, by the way. You're awesome. <laughs> you steal cookies. Cookie monster, evil cookie monster. I think there's a difference between wealthy people and rich people. Uh, uh, This is is Chris. This is not in the Bible. It's another level. (laughs) Joking. No, I do think the principle's in the Bible. See, I think that rich people determine their identity by their checkbook. I don't think rich people own things. I think rich people are owned by things. I think wealthy people own things, but rich people, things own them. See, some people own a house, other people, the house owns them. It's amazing how people will do stuff for things. Yeah, I, I was talking with someone, this is not too long ago, a couple of months ago, and they were, you know, they had this house that they had this huge payment on, and this guy literally had three jobs. His wife had a job, they had a, a job also, she worked in the evenings. And they had four little kids. And he was, you know, he came up and he was talking to me for, and he said, you know, I don't, I don't really know what to do. It's like we're barely making our house payments and da da da. He's going through this whole thing. I'm working three jobs. I'm like, sell the house. Sell the house. You're, you're in a house that's too expensive. He said, well, we really like the house. Listen. <laughs> That's the problem, exactly. Like you like the like you would actually work three jobs and not have family time so that you could have a house? A nice house? I'd rather live in a crammed apartment and have family time and God time than be a slave to a possession. I don't want to be a slave to a possession. I don't want to be possessed by stuff. I mean, I don't care if a guy, you know, if you own a Ferrari, awesome, as long as it doesn't own you. 
As long as it doesn't define you either. You, know, you, you can have extra money. Let's say you're a millionaire, but your Ferrari is your identity. How many know there's a problem with that? Like, I, I drive a Ferrari, you know. It's like, I like the 49ers, you know. This is a team, but you know, it's like, it's fun, but it's just a game. It's, it's, not, it's not life and death. I mean, you know, it's not, I mean, it feels that way when you're at my house. I ate a half a bag of chips tonight. When they were playing the dang game on it. Like, Kathy's all, you hungry? I'm like, no, don't bring me, no, I'm not hungry. I'm nervous. I, I, I think this thing's an idol in my life. Okay, I admitted it. I confessed. Go 49ers. Jesus said... If you said something, (laughs) if you've not been faithful with the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you true riches? This is amazing. I mean, think about this for a minute on on the positive side. Even people that struggle with money in here. I understand there's there's people that that do. I mean, just the subject. I understand it does create tension. It's like, you know, talking about politics or something. But. Think about this. He said, if you're not faithful with unrighteous money, who will give you true riches? The really cool thing about this is that you have a natural way to show God you trust him. I mean, how do you, how do you know if you trust God? You go, I trust God. I believe God. Okay, let's say, I have faith. James says, show me by actions. Right? If you said, I, I'm, a, I'm a woman of faith, I'm like, okay, how do I know that? How do I know you're a woman of faith? Well, I pray for the sick. Okay. So you have faith for sickness. That's a gift, right? So you walk in that gift. But how do I know that you actually live by faith? It drives me crazy when you ask somebody, <laughs> what do you do for a living? And they say, I live by faith. I can't stand when people say that. Because the connotation is, if you have a job with a weekly, monthly salary, you no longer need faith. And what I'm saying is, that's the connotation. I live by faith. The connotation is, you don't. You get a paycheck. I don't want to be reduced down to what I can do. I don't want my finances reduced down to what I can do. I don't want my monthly income to be reduced down to what I can do. I want to, listen, if I make a million dollars a month, I still want to live by faith. I don't want to reduce my finances to what I can lay, to my labor. I want to reduce it to his. So when you say, I live by faith, I'm saying, you don't have a job. That's what you're saying. Because your connotation is, because I have a job, and I get a monthly or weekly salary or whatever, that I don't need faith anymore. And I'm like, I don't care how much money you, you have. Listen, if you, the day you stop living by faith is the day you reduce your salary down to what you can do. And I don't want to ever live around what I can do. I'm serious. I need billions for my vision. How about you? I, I'm, I'm being serious. Like, I have a huge vision. If I had a billion dollars, I would have a nicer house, but I would give tons more away. I, I, I love to give. I, I, like, I'm a, I tell you, Kathy would agree with you, would agree with this. I'm addicted to giving. Like, I actually enjoy it. And when I don't enjoy it, I know I get more credit for it. 
Because giving sacrificially means you give when you don't feel like it, right? So most of the time, I really like it. Like, I really like to give. I, 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 I really like to give. I like to give secretly. I really like to give secretly. I love to know that I made that happen, but nobody knows but me and God. Well, sometimes Kathy finds out. And uh, <laughs> she's like, hey, where'd that money go? <laughs> she knows now. It's been with me so many years. I actually, I actually really enjoy giving. And, and then there are times when I don't. And, and when people are manipulating, like I go to conferences and people get up there and they treat me like I don't want to give. That makes me mad. And, and they, the, I don't like to be manipulated into giving. I don't like to be taunted into giving. So when that happens, then I give. Because I don't want to. It happens a lot in conferences. I go places and they, and they take the offering takes 40 minutes. And I don't, hey, if you, listen, a 40 minute offering is fine if you're sharing a vision. Like, hey, I have this vision. I want you to know the opportunity you have. And, and it takes 40 minutes to describe it. That's not a problem to me. In fact, I, I, I like that. I'm like, okay, I capture the vision. You're doing this thing in Africa. It costs this amount of money. And this is what we're doing with it. No problem. I don't like when you take 35 of the 40 minutes to tell me what's going to happen if I don't give. Or that if I do, then you're going to get an extra prophetic word or the word that we gave you is going to actually work. But if you don't, I hate that stuff, man. That's witchcraft. That's witchcraft. I hate that stuff. And I almost always give when people do that. I do it because I don't want to. And I want to convince, I want to convince my soul that I will be generous. Not because people deserve it, but because I'm a man of honor. And so I'm sitting here, I'm like, I'm giving this thousand bucks, and I do not. In fact, I'm going to give more. I'm going to give more because it hurts. Because I, I, I like to give so it doesn't hurt very often. So when that guy's up there and he's like, you dirty, rotten scoundrels, and you're all going to die of diseases. And nothing, you're, listen, you know, this conference, nothing that happened this conference, even though you paid to get in, is going to benefit you if you don't give to this offering. You know, no one says it that way, but that's how you, you walk out feeling like, dude, if I don't drop something in the box, I might die in a car accident on the way home. How many of you have ever felt that way before? Man, I hate that stuff. I did have, I did go to a place where the, the, a prophet got up and he, you know, he, yeah, he took his own offering. And he, he literally said, if you don't give to God, he won't give back. I'm like, okay, that's fine. I, I can justify that. But then his application was, I'm going to give you a prophetic word, but it isn't going to work if you don't give me money. And he said it almost that clear. I'm like, no, I really have to give. I really feel manipulated now. <laughs> I think it's really cool that you can do something for a God who needs nothing. Like, take it away. Let's, let's leave money behind now. I think it's really cool. I, have, I serve a God who's a multi-catrillionaire. Like, he doesn't... I mean, he's Bill Gates on... Cosmos steroids. He doesn't need anything. Like he, he will. Ne- if he needed anything, he would just like he said to David. If I needed something, I wouldn't tell you. 
David said, I want to build a house for you. He's like, David, if I needed a house, I wouldn't even tell you. I mean, if God wanted money, he'd just say money and it would be there. No, think about this is whatever. What's cool is, you know, when I worship God, I'm like, Jesus, I love you. It's like, this is all for me. I mean, God says, I want you to worship me for you. I don't actually need it. Like, I'm not like, oh, my ego's really like, oh, you know, I've had a lot of bad things happen, and the devil's accusing me day and night, and so glad people, I can't wait till Sunday. <laughs> Gabriel, Sunday's coming, we'll feel better. No, no, God lets me give because it's good for me. It's good for me. And someone wrote in my Facebook and said, you know, would you... Would you withhold from your son if he didn't give? Well, absolutely, I would. I absolutely would not give to, I would not spoil a kid who didn't know how to work for his money. I would not allow my children to get stuff as they got older for nothing. I would want them to participate, not for my sake, for theirs. Four years ago, you know, we, Christmas is a big deal at our house. And, you know, frankly, you know, my kids, Jason, uh, you know Jason, and, and Jamie and, and um, Shannon, when they were growing up, we were, we were poor. We were not American. We were American poor, not African poor. So this, when I say poor, our kids always ate. I just mean we didn't have, like if we bought one kid a pair of shoes one month, that means someone else went without that, that level Lower middle class. Does that make sense? So Christmas is a big deal for us. And we would save for Christmas because it was a big deal for Kathy. It was a big deal for me. So we would actually make Christmas a sacrifice and, and save. So now my grandkids are coming up. I have eight grandkids. And, you know, so Christmas is a big deal. And mom and, and, and papa and grandma got money. So now we, we don't have to sacrifice and we can still give a lot. So... About four years ago, okay, and so Kathy started this thing. As we got more grandkids, they're like, she's like, I don't know what to buy them, you know. So she started doing this thing where she would say, you know, write down everything you want. Tell each of the grandkids, write down everything you want. I'm not going to get you everything you want, but write down everything you want. And, and she did that with actually our kids too. Write down everything you want because I, I don't want to go shopping for, you know, I'll, I'll spend six months trying to figure out what you want. So my grandkids wrote down everything they wanted, and they, they've been doing that for, for a while. And so four years ago, we, uh, anyway, we had some extra money, and she's like, I would really like to get them everything on the list. You know me. I'm like, whatever, awesome, that's amazing. Get more than it. You want to buy them all Corvettes as long as there's, you know. I don't care. I like to give. So she's like, and you know, that Kathy's more reasonable. Like, she's wiser about that kind of stuff. She's, but this time, she's like, I'd like to get them everything that's on their list. I'm like, okay, let's do it. So she did. And we had, I don't even want to tell you how much we spent on Christmas. <laughs> it even makes a giver feel bad. We had, you couldn't see the tree. We had Christmas, in fact, in fact, we couldn't put them all around the tree. They were downstairs, hidden in places. We had some of it in the shop. We bought a quad for one of them. Couldn't even bring it in the house. I literally, that was ridiculous. 
I'm like, this is how Solomon would give to God, not to his grandkids. <laughs> it was, I'm embarrassed to tell the story almost. So anyway, so we opened gifts for four hours. It was, it was an experience. My grandkids were opening gifts and they were like, you know, uh, and they were like, ah, oh, you know, and here's the next one. I was like, ah, oh, and there were so many gifts being opened. And it was like nobody was watching anybody else. And they're like, where's my next one? And when we got all done that day, opening gifts, one of my grandchildren said, there's a thing on my list. You didn't get me. That's what he said. He said, I, there's one thing on my list I didn't get. I, I wonder why you didn't get it for me. I'm like, dude. This made me so mad. I didn't say anything to him, of course. But I said, man, that's why, that's why God requires us to give right there. It's not that he needs it. It's that we need it. And I, I'm telling I'm seriously, joking aside, I was broken hard. I cried myself to sleep for three nights. And I thought that was the stupidest thing that we've done with our grandchildren. It created a spirit of entitlement in them. So the next year, I said, we're going to get them one gift, and then they're going to buy gifts for the poor. And we're going to go give it to the poor on Christmas. And that's what we did for the next couple of years. For them. It was for the poor, of course, but really my motivation was for them. I wanted them to feel like. I wanted them to, I wanted them to have the, yeah, the experience of giving. The experience of giving to somebody something and seeing, I mean, I, mean, I don't know. If, you've, if, you've not, if you're not a big giver, it's so amazing. The, the sense that you have that you gave something to somebody, is, it's a gift from God. The experience is a gift from God, I mean. Um, how are we doing? We're supposed to be done. So we, we got 20 more pages to go. We'll have to do it next time. I, I want to tell you a couple stories before we're done. I, uh, when we first came to Bethel, we were, we were um, well, I, I need, I'll, tell you this, I'll tell you a different story. Um, I, I, we owned businesses for 20 years, and we, um, we owned auto parts stores, and we owned repair shops, and we owned a uh, remanufacturing plant. And so um, when we, we decided we were going to come to Bethel, we, our, our supplier, who was the second largest supplier of auto parts in the United States, a half a billion dollar public company, um, we went to them and we said, we're going to sell our stores because we're going in, gonna, we're going to change occupations. And they said, well, we, we, don't want to get, we don't want you to sell these stores because we're afraid that the, our competitor will change, they'll change brands. So we'll buy the stores from you. And we'll, you can run the stores do your other occupation, and we'll give you back 17% of all the profit. And all you have to do is oversee the stores. And we'll buy. We'll, and you name the price, and we'll pay it. I'm like, that's a pretty good deal. So anyway, this is a long process, and so we, we made this deal. With this, with, and we're at the same time, we're, we're, we're talking to Bill and Benny about coming here and starting the school ministry. And, 
and um you know kind of making plans and so anyway so we opened an escrow and the company we just, so we agreed on a price and the escrow was supposed to be a 90 day escrow and 90 days turned into 120 days 180 days you know three months we're six months we're seven months we're eight months and um oh i forgot to tell you this one part we owned one of the auto part we owned three auto parts stores and one of the auto parts stores was in reading and the Reading store was losing 300000 a year. So I said, I'm going to close the store that's losing money because I have two stores that make a lot of money. Makes sense, right? They go, no, no, we want this location. No, no, we want to buy all three stores, and we want this location. I go, well, this location is losing 300000 a year. They said, well, it's fine. You know, we'll, we'll pay you for the loss because we want to keep the store. Anyway, the short, short in the story is, 18 months later, the escrow went on for 18 months. And they said, they finally said, and I came back and I said, listen, I'm closing this store. I can't sustain these losses. I don't have the finances to sustain these losses. They said, oh, here's what you'll do. Because we're your supplier and we're the buyer, and your, your parts bill is 100 grand a month, just don't pay the 100,000 until the escrow closes. Well, that's a pretty good deal. Like, you don't pay the 100000 so I'm getting parts basically for free, right? I don't have to pay my bill. And they, I said, okay, that'll work, So, which is supposed to be a couple of months. And they said, we'll just take that off the price. Well, a couple of months turned into 18 months, so that was $1.8 million. The week we were supposed to close escrow, we had moved to Bethel. We'd been here for a month, and we're like, hey, when's the escrow going to close? You know, our team... We have a whole team of people who are managing our stores. We're like, when's the escrow going to close? When's the escrow going to close? And they said, oh, it's going to close Friday. So finally they said, okay, go down, sign papers. It's closing Friday. We signed papers on Monday, and on Friday they went bankrupt. They went bankrupt. And, and when they went bankrupt, because our supplier, do you understand this? Like our supplier was also the buyer. The supplier went bankrupt. And because 3,800 auto parts stores all owed money to our supplier, no other supplier would supply us. So now I'm an auto parts store that can't get auto parts. Yeah. Kind of like a dairy that has no milk, a gas station that has no gas. And for six months, we couldn't buy parts unless we paid cash for them. And um, obviously, you can't operate like that. So finally, the bankruptcy court, their bankruptcy court called us and said, um, they, I mean, sent us this letter and said, hey, you have 30 days to pay the $1.8 million you owe us. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a second, wait. I don't owe you $1.8 million. You owe me $2 million. So we went to an attorney, and the attorney says, well, you're right. You can sue them. You have this contract. Only problem is you're suing a company that's bankrupt. So I said, well, what's my recourse? And the, the attorney said, go bankrupt. You owe $1.8 million. To one supplier, not to mention all the other suppliers. So I'm like, oh, so I've been building a business for 20 years that I sold. The guy, the company doesn't have the money to pay me, and I'm at Bethel. And so I go to the elders, and I say to the elders, I tell them the whole story. I tell them all the details. I show them all the documents. I take an hour to show them everything. I, want them to, I don't want no secrets. I told them everything that happened. And I said, Kathy and I are gonna, we're going to leave Bethel. We'd, we hadn't started the school yet. We had been there for about six months. School started at a year after we got here. 
We weren't receiving any money from Bethel. We came for free. And um, in the second year, we each got $1,000 a month. So Kathy got 1000 I got 1000 That's what we made the second year of Bethel and the third year. And the fourth year, we took a pay cut. So we, um, so we talked to the elders, and we said, um, we're going to leave Bethel because we're going to go bankrupt, and we don't want that to be on Bethel. We don't want the leaders of the school to be, we owe all these suppliers. And so um, it, was a very, it was a very intense meeting with the elders. We talked to Bill first, and, and I told Bill, I want to meet with the elders and tell them that we're leaving. And Bill's all, no, no, you're not leaving. I said, no, we're leaving. So we were, we were talking to the elders. Some of our elders are in their 70s and 80s. Some of them have been elders here for 50 years. So I got done explaining the whole story. Everybody was in tears. I was in tears. And the oldest elder got up and he said, you're not leaving. We're a family. And families stay together in hard times. And he said, if you need to bankrupt, we're, we're all right with that. That's what bankruptcy is for. But we want you to give us six months to pray for you. We want you to allow us to pray for you for six months before you go bankrupt. Because I believe, he said, I believe God's going to do a miracle. I go, well, it's going to be $1.8 million. Do you realize like $1,000 a month? That will take me like hmm, 14 eternities to pay this back. He said, I, I realize that, but I, I, I believe that God wants to do a miracle. And if he doesn't, at the end of six months, we are okay with you going bankrupt. So, is this boring? So, um, I'm like, okay. I, I, and I said to them, I have no faith for this. I have no faith for this. I have no sense that God's going to deliver me. And they said, okay, then we'll just depend on ours. Within 60 days, we were forgiven 900,000 of it. 60 days. 900,000 was forgiven. I'm like, okay. I owed another bank, SBA loan, I owed another bank 300,000. Longer story. The, the bank said, make us a deal. I said, I'm going to make you a deal and I'm money. They said, well, make us a deal and we might give us... You know, an offer. I said, okay, I'll give you $10,000 on the 300000 I owe you. They came back and said, we won't take that. I said, okay. They said, but we'll take eleven. we will take 11000 on 300 Well, it wouldn't have mattered if it was 11 you know, unless it was $11. I didn't have thousands of dollars. I didn't have any money. So I said, you know, to Kathy, this is a great deal, but we don't have 11000 We don't have $1,000. And she's like, well, the guys prayed for us. Just sign it. Sign the contract. So we signed the contract, and they, and they said, the, the only, the only, here's the only stipulation. You have 30 days to come up with it. On the 29th day, someone handed me a check for 30000 Get this. Get this. It's better than that. A guy I didn't know handed me a check for 30000 and he got the amount. He got, this, he got an inheritance the year before. And he had a dream. And in the dream, he saw himself handing me a check for 30000 Didn't even know me. Handed me a check for 30000 I owed the IRS. And between the IRS and this 11000 it was almost exactly 30000 I paid the IRS off and him off.
By the end of the third year, I owed nobody anything. I either paid it off, got it reduced, or it got forgiven. 1.8 million. That's a pretty good deal. So I have faith for money. I could tell you story after story after story. I'd be laying on the floor weeping. And, and, and God would say, do you trust me? I'm like, well, you know, honestly, I'm not sure. And he'd say, well, you, you need to trust me because I'm about to give you some more money. And people would, I'd go, I'd go to a conference, Bill would be speaking, I wouldn't be speaking, they'd give me $10,000. I wouldn't even be speaking. I'm like, I like this guy in a conference. This is good. <laughs> they see where the anointing's at. <laughs> of course I'm joking. I'm not joking about that, though. I mean, people would hand me money. I went in my office one day, and there was, there was $10,000 no, there was, there was $10, on my desk. I'm like, that's crazy. I said, God, thank you. He goes, oh, there's more. I went to my mailbox, $10,000 more dollars. Bill's teaching on giving one day. I have still, I'm still in this place, right? I mean, you know, I, I still owe tons of money. So Bill's talking about that Sodom, one of the reasons why Sodom fell is because they didn't remember the poor. And immediately I felt like we should give $1,000. And I'm just telling you the amount because that was a lot, a lot, a lot of money. $1,000, all the money we had. And so I turned to Kathy and I said, I think we should give. And she goes, I think we should give $1,000. I'm like, okay, that means we don't have money for food or anything, right? That's where we were. We wrote a check for $1,000, got home. When we got home, there was 15000 waiting at our house. True story. God's my witness. Three weeks later, the Lord says, we're in, we're in a service, and Bill, nobody's preaching about money. And, and I said to Kathy, I think we're supposed to give another thousand to the poor. She said, let's do that. <laughs> it's a little easier now because we have food. We give a thousand dollars, go home, another 15,000 given to us. I'm like, let's try this again. See if it's like slot machine. I could tell you so many stories. I have journals full of them. You can imagine three years. It was three years of this. Everywhere I go, people would give me money. It would come in the mail. It would come secretly. It would be in my box. It would be in my drawer. I don't even know where money came from. I, I would say, I'd say, no, that's, I would say a third of the money, I don't even know where it came from. So, the Lord said to me, so we've given all of our life. I mean, you live with Bill, you give. He's the most insane giver I've ever seen in my life. I've watched, I've lived, we lived with the Johnsons for six months. I've watched Bill give away all of his money for food several times when we lived with him. And we're like, oh, we're living with him. So like, okay, we have no food. <laughs> like literally have no food. And he's like, no, no, God told us to give. It'll come back every time it come back. So we've always been, you know, percentage-wise, big givers, always. And um, so when we got in this trouble, financial trouble, really serious financial trouble, I said, it says give and it shall be given to you. And I'm mad. 
because I lost my house. Oh, by the way, I should tell you, I lost my house. They towed away my cars. I thought someone stole them. I called the sheriff, who's my friend. He goes, Chris, both your cars got repossessed. I lost my house that my kids grew up in. I lost my businesses. I lost everything. And I was mad. And the Lord said, everything works together for good. And you thought you were planting a vegetable garden, but I'm telling you, plant an orchard. You know the difference? You plant a vegetable garden, you get a few months later, you get vegetables. You plant an orchard, you don't get for a while. Years. And the Lord said, every penny you gave, I'm going to give back to you. You just need to be patient. So I don't know where you're at in life, but wherever you're at, you're like, I don't believe in tithing. That's cool. Hopefully you believe in giving. And don't be stingy and just give 10%. That's wimpy. So if you're in trouble financially, I want you to stand up. You students that are sitting, you haven't paid your bill, you better stand up. I'm only teasing. I, 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 I really do believe that I'm going to pray for you and your circumstances are going to change. I didn't believe for mine when I was in trouble. It was the elders. They, they believed when I, when I couldn't. I was too angry to believe. But they believed. And I'm telling you, I believe for you. I'm not pretending. I'm not trying to make a great message out of it. I believe for you. I have great faith for finances. When I came to Bethel, I didn't realize it, but Bethel was in trouble too. <laughs> Bill said they were a little tight. <laughs> a little tight. <laughs> it couldn't pay any of our bills. We're a little tight. It couldn't pay our, our, our employees. We're a little tight. I'm like... Oh man, out of the fire, in, in out of the pot, into the fire. <laughs> Bethel was in the same trouble. That was interesting. And over three, the the three years that the Lord was deal, delivering me, the Lord was delivering Bethel simultaneously. I think I think I was a prophetic statement to Bethel. I I'm serious. And it took three years to dig Bethel out of that hole. And um, and Bill would come in the office. This is Bill's. This is Bill's one tool on finances. Whenever we're in trouble, I'd, I'd go and I'd say, man, we have these bills to pay. We have, we have payroll Friday, and we have no money for the payroll, and, and we need 20000 to pay bills. He goes, okay, write a check for 10000 to this church. I said, I said we don't have any money. <laughs> you're not understanding, you're not comprehending. He said, we don't have 10000 in the bank. I go, yeah, we do, but we need 40 of it. We need 40. We have 10 Okay, give the 10 away. It's not enough to pay our bills anyway. I'm not telling you about our bills anymore. That's how Bill deals with finances. I'm dead serious. He's the most generous person. I'm pretty generous. He makes he embarrasses me. And so when we're in trouble financially, I don't even tell him anymore. I'm like, I know what you're going to say. Give away 50000 now. I'm going to pray for you. And I, I feel, 
I feel like 99% chance your circumstances are going to change. There's always the 1% God's dealing with differently. And don't think, well, I'm the 1%, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> I just don't want to be a liar and say, you're all going to change. But I know that something's going to change when I pray for you. I'm serious. I really have faith for this. On the healing, you may want to go to Bill, because sometimes people die when I pray for them. They start out with a rash and die the day later. I have a cold. You don't want me to pray for you. I don't know what it is. I'm joking about that. Put your hands out and just get in this receive mode. Your hands out. Just It's just, um, you know what I'm trying to say. I just want you to get in receive mode. And I know that a bunch of you are like, I, I prayed and prayed and nothing's happened. I understand. I, I get that really well. well. Lord, I pray right now that every person that's in a tough place financially, these that are standing, I, I pray that you would change their circumstances. I pray that their even their money would make money. That they would go from source to resource. But Lord, I pray that they would that they would receive um you know, I, I'm just going to, instead of pray, I'm just going to tell you what I see, and then I'll just, we'll just say amen to it, okay? I think that God is doing the same thing in some of you that he was doing in me, and he wants not just to finance you, he wants you to know he loves you. And he wants you to know that you can totally trust him. And uh, most of you that are standing, you're, you're really good givers, and you're probably like me. You're like, you know what, I've been doing all the stuff you said, and I'm in this spot, and it kind of kind of makes me mad. And so, Lord, I just release finances on these folks. And I pray that it would come from places that they couldn't predict. I like the unpredictable stuff. It's like kisses from God. I pray for the, un, you know, the surprises, gifts and surprises. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Money would show up in accounts. Money would go get money. It would make big friends. There literally would be jobs open up. There'd be, there'd be um, uh, debt. I, I see uh, several people that, um, I, I see this uh, uh, jubilee written over uh, my, 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 this vision of the word jubilee. It's, uh, it's where they forgave all debt. I'm not saying you're all going to get forgiven all debt, but I have a sense that that's a part of it, that God's going to forgive lots of people's debt. And so it won't be like necessarily someone gives you money, but the debt gets forgiven. And, um, and uh, also... Um, I just, you know, people tell me there's a prosperity angel. I don't know if there is, but if there is, I want to make friends with him. <laughs> I've never seen him or talked to him. But, Lord, I just pray right now. I know this, the angels are servants of God. So if you need money, then obviously if there's an angel specifically assigned to money, then we pray right now you'd come here. <laughs> but otherwise, the angels that are with us all the time, I pray that they'd bring money. And help us. And I pray uh, most importantly for this, that thing that says, you know, somebody else is going to call for money. You know, that, 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 uh, that foreboding thing. It says, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to be deeper in debt. I'm going to get kicked out of my house. Something bad's going to happen. I pray against that foreboding spirit. And I pray that the sign that something happened tonight, is that tomorrow morning you wake up feeling like something amazing is about to happen. I don't know what it is. I don't know when it's going to happen. But I have 
this impending sense of amazing. Instead of the impending sense of doom, I had the impending sense of blessing. I wake up in the morning, I'm like, something's going to happen. This rent problem's going to go away. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know it's going to happen. And Lord, I just release faith in the room for finances. In Jesus' name, amen.